The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. Hey, it's Martine. So this week at The Post, we launched a new daily news podcast that I am already obsessed with. The podcast is called The Seven. It's a morning news briefing that comes out every day by 7 a.m. with the seven stories you need to know to start your day. The host is my colleague, Jeff Pierre, and he is the voice you want to hear in the morning. He's calm, considered. Honestly, listening to him tell me the news is like when you come downstairs in the morning and there's already a hot cup of coffee waiting for you. So subscribe to The 7 wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you getting ready? And I am too. I am too. It's real. It's happening. Donald Trump is running for president again. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. On Tuesday night, former President Trump officially kicked off his campaign, promising that he will be the candidate to lead Republicans to victory. But we will not be intimidated. We will persevere. We will stand tall in the storm. We will march forward into the torrent. And we, in the end, will win. Our country will win. We will win. The problem is, factions in the Republican Party don't seem sold on Trump. Voters didn't show up for the candidates he backed in the midterms. And let's not forget about those pesky legal investigations. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, November 16th. Today, the next season of Donald Trump's presidential campaign. Producer Arjun Singh spoke with our colleague Isaac Arnstorf. They talk about the forces inside and outside the Republican Party that could make Trump's 2024 run much harder. Isaac is a national political reporter for The Post who was in Florida today. And here's their conversation. So last night, Donald Trump announces his 2024 presidential campaign at Mar-a-Lago. It was this much-awaited announcement. And Isaac, you had a chance to be there yourself. Tell me just first, what was the vibe like at that event? The vibe was kind of a mashup between a Trump rally and like a really, really over-the-top bar mitzvah. So, you know, it's in this glitzy ballroom with uh, gold paint on on all the columns and details and huge chandeliers. Uh, but he also brought in a bunch of super fans um, who go, go to his rally in their costumes and they were playing the rally playlist. And so, yeah, it was this uh, kind of half rally, half gala. Uh, someone texted me calling it the, the MAGA menagerie. 
I mean, that sounds like a really lively atmosphere. And what about other people from the party, party insiders? Were there people who were asking Trump not to do this announcement so close to kind of a midterm, not necessarily loss, but a poor performance? Can you tell me more about how people inside the party are feeling about this? Well, this has been really going on all year where a lot of Republican advisors and leaders were trying to get Trump to not announce before the midterms. Uh, he was he was interested in doing it over the summer, um, so even, even before the votes were cast. And then he came very close to actually announcing the night before at a rally in Ohio and ended up just announcing that he would be announcing, uh, getting closer and closer to that line because he was eager, he wanted to be able to take credit uh, for a a great Republican performance that a lot of Republicans were expecting in the midterm. And his advisors were were warning him, you know, you don't want your coverage to get swallowed up by the election news. And you also, they were concerned about him motivating Democrats. And so then when the red wave didn't materialize, um, and in particular, a lot of the candidates who Trump endorsed who won their primaries because of Trump's backing really underperformed the other Republicans on the ballot. There's been a lot more uh, open blame and criticism pointed in Trump's direction than you've been hearing from elected sitting Republicans on the record in public than you've seen in a long time. And there was an interesting split screen last night between while Trump was having this event at Mar-a-Lago, their Republican Governors Association was meeting in Orlando. uh, And uh, you were hearing a lot of comments from uh, former New, York, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, from current New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, Larry Hogan, talking about how Trump was not working for the party and they needed to move on. And in some ways, some of those remarks were not that notable, particularly from people like Hogan, who have been outspoken against Trump before. But what was more surprising was the reception that they were getting in the room, meaning a a lot of cheers and applause for that sentiment. Well, and it sounds like after what happened on Tuesday, some in the party at least are doing a little bit of soul searching of where the direction of this party should be. But Isaac, we're talking to you around 1130 on Wednesday morning. Can you just really quickly break down where control of Congress stands right now and how Republican leaders are feeling about it? So based on the call our projections at the Washington Post, Republicans are one seat away from winning control of the House, uh, which is just kind of crazy that a week later we're still waiting on that call when before the election Republicans were talking about picking up 30 seats when they only needed, I think, five to flip because there were so many races that ended up going the Democrats' way and continuing to be really, really close. uh, We're still waiting for that final call on the House. And in the Senate, um, Democrats have definitely maintained control of the chamber. And we're going to see next month there's going to be a runoff in Georgia that will determine whether it's a 50-seat majority with the vice president's tiebreaker or an outright 51-seat majority. And so at the same time that you've got this reckoning with Trump's role in the party, you're also seeing challenges 
to the Republican leadership in Congress. So there was a leadership election yesterday in the House, and Kevin McCarthy won, but he does not have the 218 votes that he needs to get an outright majority on the floor of the House to become Speaker. So he's going to have to work on that until January if he's actually going to be able to become Speaker. Yes, if you look at the last two speakers, uh, Paul Ryan, he had at this time had 43, lost 43 votes. Nancy Pelosi had 32 votes and no one was running against her at that time. Look, we have our work cut out for us. We've got to have a small majority. We've got to listen to everybody in our conference. And if you've watched what we have... And then there's also been some rumblings about potential challenges to the Republican National Committee chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel. But it looks like she's still on pretty firm ground right now. But it's all part of this reckoning within the party based on the results last week that there's just no way around were disappointing for Republicans. Well, and I remember Trump kind of infamously said that if the Republicans did really well, he was planning on taking credit for those wins. If not, it wasn't necessarily going to be his fault. But how much are people inside of the party faulting Trump himself for what happened, if they are at all? Well, there are a lot of data points on that. If you look at how Trump's endorsed candidates and the candidates most aligned with Trump performed relative to other Republicans. So, you know, take New Hampshire, for example, important because uh, it's an early nominating state in the primary for president. The Republican governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, not a Trump guy, overwhelmingly reelected. And the Republican nominee for Senate, Don Bolduc, who was an election denier, lost. In the competitive races, one of the, the few kind of Trump-aligned Senate candidates who actually did win, J.D. Vance in Ohio, needed like $40 million in support from Republican super PACs in order to get there and still ran really far behind the Republican governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, who was not closely aligned with Trump. But look, I mean, a lot of the people who are coming forward now and calling Trump a drag on the ticket are people who were not super thrilled about Trump before. And so we just always have to be cautious about um, Trump's ability to use his base as a plurality, if not an outright majority, to beat the competition like he did in 2016. We must remember that Republicans won five million more votes, the largest margin in many, many years, over the Democrats, five million more votes, that's a big thing. Breaking the radical Democrats' grip on Congress was crucial. So in other words, because of our great congressmen and all of our great congressmen and congresswomen, we have taken over Congress. Nancy Pelosi has been fired. Isn't that nice? If Trump's hope was to capitalize on a potential success, what is the logic of then coming in after an election where a lot in the party seemed to be feeling disappointed? Well, he already said he was going to do it. So uh, there wouldn't have been an easy way to not go through with it after that. And the other factors that were um, um, giving him a sense of urgency to launch are still there. So one is 
uh, wanting, thinking that if he gets in first, it'll scare off a lot of the potential challengers, clear the field, pressure people to line up behind him. And the other reason, frankly, is that he's under multiple criminal investigations and uh, the thinking is that it makes it harder for the Justice Department to prosecute him once he's a declared candidate because he can use that to make the prosecution, the potential criminal charges, look more politicized. When you say that he was hoping to clear the field of potential challengers, do we have an idea of who those challengers might be that he was trying to ward off? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of Republicans out there who are not being so subtle about the fact that they're preparing campaigns, including uh, on election night and after, you know, being almost emboldened by uh, what appears to be some political weakness for Trump. So they include Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who uh, was reelected on Tuesday, last Tuesday, by a landslide, um, and was also speaking at the uh, Republican Governors Association meeting that I mentioned in Orlando last night. Um, You've also got Trump's former number two, former Vice President Mike Pence, um, his former Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, um, so also former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott uh, made a reference in his victory speech last week about uh, potentially having presidential ambitions. I mean, no one else has announced yet, and we're probably not likely to see a lot of other announcements this early, but it doesn't look like they are running scared of Trump right now. Well, and that makes me wonder that if there is still this lingering support for Trump in the base, President Biden claims he's the only one on the Democratic side who can beat Trump. But is there a sense that Trump may be the only one on the Republican side who could take on Biden yet again? No. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing Republicans talking about that Trump wouldn't beat Biden in a rematch and that they need someone else who can take on Biden. But the flip side is that uh, on the Democratic side, definitely uh, Trump running and if Trump becomes the nominee is going to be a big factor in Biden's calculus. He's certainly said uh, publicly all signs point to he is going to run for re-election, but our reporting Um, behind the scenes there indicates that a big factor in Biden's thinking is that maybe he's the only one who can beat Trump and that if Trump is going to be the Republican nominee, then it is going to be a rematch between him and Biden. After the break, Arjun talked with Isaac about the criminal investigations into Trump and what they could mean for his campaign. We'll be right back. So I want to return back to the Department of Justice investigations that you mentioned earlier. As those move forward along with his presidential campaign, how could those two intersect and collide with each other? What kind of problems could this create for Trump? But also, does this create problems for the prosecutors in this case as well? Yeah, so there are multiple investigations going on right now. 
there's the Department of Justice investigating the mishandling of classified documents taken from the White House at the end of the Trump administration and brought to Mar-a-Lago and that were recovered from Mar-a-Lago through a search warrant in August. There's also, unrelated, another DOJ investigation into the effort to submit phony electors claiming that Trump won the 2020 election. And then there's the DA in the Atlanta area is investigating Trump for his pressure on Georgia officials to overturn the election results there. And there's a lawsuit by the New York Attorney General claiming business fraud by Trump's company, which is not criminal and is not against Trump personally, but is really important because uh, it could, and perhaps already is, affecting his livelihood and his personal fortune. You know, there's no rule that says you can't indict a presidential candidate the way there is a a Department of Justice policy against indicting a sitting president. So the fact that Trump has declared his candidacy doesn't immunize him from prosecution. But look, I mean, it definitely does put the Justice Department in a tough spot. Um, And it's never happened before. And so that's really the thing, is that, you know, a former president who lost running for president again under criminal investigation by the current president's administration, um, facing potential prosecution while running, you know, we're just totally in uncharted territory with that. Have these investigations had any impact on his standing with his base, positively or negatively? Well, I mean, he said last night, I'm the victim, you know, and he loves to play the victim. So, uh, I mean... There's definitely some indications that among his diehard supporters, uh, him being under siege uh, just rallies them to his side. But I think among other Republicans, you know, it definitely, there's a sense that it uh, it creates vulnerabilities for him. Uh, they, they just are objectively political liabilities for any presidential candidate. And even people who like Trump, who liked his presidency, who liked his policies, are asking themselves now, can he win again? Has too much of the country already made up their mind about him? Does he have too much baggage? Is he too divisive, too unpopular? Would we be better off with someone else? And it seemed for a long time that within the Republican Party, much of it came down to whether you were pro-Trump or you were not pro-Trump. Now it sounds like there might be cracks forming in there. Do you get a sense that we're going to start seeing people in the party who outright take a stand against Donald Trump and might not get the same kind of blowback that they had either feared or received previously? I mean, that's definitely already happening with a lot of Republicans being more openly critical of Trump and taking some of that flack but bearing it. But I think more importantly, like the anti-Trump contingent of the party remains pretty small. And really what you're seeing open up is like a non-Trump or a post-Trump contingent where you're not running against him, you know, you're not trying to be Liz Cheney, um, all focused on on January 6th and criticizing Trump, but it's it's more uh, look, looking to, to move on from Trump, to take 
the, the things that Republicans like about Trump's presidency, but uh, try to repackage it in a, a less divisive way. And an example of that is, you know, uh, even Mike Pence, who by all accounts is going to run against Trump for the nomination, is not going there in terms of being really negative about Trump. Uh, he's just trying to kind of uh, take the best parts of the Trump administration and and turn that into a, a future-focused message. You know, last time Trump ran for president and lost an election, it resulted in a massive riot at the Capitol to overturn the election in his name. Some of his supporters have just embraced political violence without really receiving that much condemnation from Trump. Isaac, I, I wonder, though, do you have any sense of whether Trump is going to try and dampen those kinds of forces in his base in this election cycle? Predicting what Trump is going to do is always a uh, pretty risky business. I mean, notably, we didn't hear a lot of stolen election talk in the announcement last night, but there was definitely you know, a, a dark undertone uh, talking about how things in the country were so bad and going to get so much worse. And if he came back to power, uh, he was going to wield that power even more forcefully than he did before. He has a, a, a well-established record of, of winking at or, or failing to disavow or distance himself from those extreme elements. And we haven't seen uh, any indication that he is changing course from that. And what about the public appetite for things like spreading these false claims about voter fraud in the 2020 election? We saw many people who supported that same baseless claim lose in their races on election day. Has the public seemed to move on or wants to push back against some of those ideas? Or does it seem like even in this election cycle, there could be room for another conspiracy theory to be pushed by Trump and really take footing, at least amongst his base. You know, one way to read the results is that voters rejected election deniers. And what, what surprised me the most was not just that they lost, but that they actually conceded. Um, you know, notably in Pennsylvania and Michigan, these candidates who built their whole campaign around this idea of fraud lost resoundingly and did the traditional gracious thing of of conceding defeat. And you didn't see Trump come out on election night like he did in 2020, demanding to stop the count and saying everything was rigged. And so you haven't really seen that catch on so far this cycle, even though there have been those conspiracy theories and that misinformation circulating online. Isaac, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a great conversation. Thank you. Isaac Arnsdorf is a national political reporter for The Post. Arjun Singh is a politics producer for Post Reports. This story was produced by Charlotte Freeland. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Rena Flores. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.